Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Evenings at 7 on Faith Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you've had a good week. And if you are uh, working at your job, God bless you. You know, we realize from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches that God cares about your work. And if you don't have work right now, just know that we care about you. I care about your situation. And I'm praying for you that you find the work that you're looking for. Because God has given us a great tool, uh, and that is to impact the world through our work. And I feel like the most blessed guy in the, in the whole world just to be here talking to you right now. So if you've had a good work week, God bless you and, and give God the glory for the work that he's provided you to do. I think it's always best to treat each day of work as an act of worship to him. And that way you, you think, well, even if my job has its ups and downs and difficulties, I'm, I'm handing it over to the Lord who's provided it for me and has given me a way to provide for my family and take care of uh, the finances and to uh, give to my church and missionaries. And it's, it's a wonderful world out there. Uh, my first guest is Dr. Ann Bradley. She is with the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. You can always head over to tifwe.org. So, Ann, welcome to the program. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Oh, of course. And I'm always interested in, in asking some general questions to get things started. Like, what are the econ- economic indicators looking like right now, overall? Well, this is an important question right now, and I feel like we're all just hanging on week by week uh-huh. and watching how these indicators change. Uh, so we're looking at the stock market. We're looking at employment. Uh, as you know, un- unemployment rose very significantly in the first quarter of 2020, and really a lot of the damage was done in the first half of the first quarter. So it was really compacted, very rapid change. And uh, we had, you know, 30 million people filing for unemployment. Um, But as of recently, uh, we've had 2.5 million people go back to work. So that's an indicator that I'm excited about. Um, I think that there's a lot of conversations about what type of shape the recovery will look like in terms of employment. Will it be a U? Will it be a V? You know, what will it look like? And I don't think we really know, but I think the fact that just some loosening up of the economy is getting some people back to work is a really good thing. We have a long way to go. Um, we have a long way to go to look at what, you know, the stock market tends to tell us about how people are feeling right now. Mm-hmm. And as you know, that's very volatile. But I think that there's some optimism based on the fact that people are back to work. Um, I think there's some optimism in terms of international trade, which is going to start opening back up uh, based on some trade deals with China we signed in January. So there's going to be more purchases. I think that's a good thing. Um, But, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. There's still, you know, virus cases are increasing. um, And so still, I think we have to be cautiously optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. When I think of where it sort of um, hits hardest, I I look at people with their difficulty paying their mortgage uh, and their utilities 
and there are retail stores that don't seem to be open or are going out of business and, and saying we're done. And of course, all of that creates incredible anxiety for people. Um, and when you factor all that in with what's going on with a lot of the country being uh, destroyed right now, too. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's, uh, we had in Minneapolis, I think, close to uh, $500 million of damage here in the city. Yeah. And so there's some, there's some visuals that are going on even in cities that say, boy, this starts to look like kind of a desolate place. Yeah. In other words, I don't have a question. Yeah. I haven't raised a question, right. which is <laughs> right. I was a better interviewer, I would have by now, but I'm, I'm just kind of talking through it because what I'm seeing is I'm conflicted because you, you do say the market's good. The, the joblessness, um, uh, a lot of jobs were added, and yet this quarter is kind of one to write off, isn't it? I mean, yeah, and yes, <laughs> and so GDP was down four point eight percent last quarter. I mean, that if you look at the predictions of what GDP will look like in the second quarter, it's just not encouraging, because I think it takes time to feel the effects. And of course, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, racial and social tensions in the United States and a lot of large cities. And that is causing malaise, which is kind of what you're talking about. It's not just the virus. Mm-hmm. It, and we're in a present, you know, we're in an election year. Right. So people are worried about a lot of things. People are worried about, you know, when am I going to go back to work? Am I going to go back to work? Uh, what happens when, uh, you know, the benefits I'm getting from the stimulus package are over? How are we going to overcome um, and, and create healing in, in this country? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of questions on the table, and I don't have all the answers for you uh, by any means. I don't think anybody does, but I think we have to take these things uh, both separately, what's going on, and then together and say, you know, where are we and how can we craft a way forward? Um, and we need to be having really thoughtful conversations about, about all of this. But I do think the lockdown has caused mental and social suffering. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're talking about that enough. So I think that, I mean, imagine if you live alone and you've been alone, you know, for two and a half or three months, that's, that's, we were not meant to be alone. We're social creatures. And so this has a mental and a social cost that I think will be with us for a little bit here. I don't think we're just going to go back to work and everything's going to be just fine because even the way we interact socially is different now, isn't it? You know, social distancing and wearing masks and all these types of things I think are going to have an effect on, um, you know, how we relate to one another. And I'm worried about the mental costs of Uh, of what we're going through right now. Yeah. It's because you're a loving, godly woman. And that's why you've made that comment. You know, you're a brilliant economist, but you're also someone who cares about people. And you, know, you talk about the masks and you go into the store and you go, everyone's got a mask on. So the only way you can really read anyone is through their eyes. And you can either see that their eyes are smiling or their eyes are not smiling. It gets very easy to distance yourself from people, not only physically, but you start to just go, ah, what's the point? I got a mask on. There's going to be no conversation or, you know, no interactions. And that starts to wear down people's psyche as well. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I've I've noticed that, you know, as as we've kind of started, um I live in Virginia, so we're kind of in the second phase and so things are starting to open up. So I've been to more stores than I have in a long time and I I 
agree with you. Um, it's just, I kind of feel like I'm going out of my way to smile with my eyes and to speak louder because people can't hear you as well when they can't see your lips moving. I mean, there's just a lot of things associated with this. And I think we have to wear the mask. So it's not a comment right. on that. But it is, what are we going to do to kind of uh, restore friendliness? And I mean, think about the, the, just the mental impact of this. If you kind of think of this new world, it's like you have to treat everybody like they're carrying a disease. Right. And there's implications on how we relate to one another with that. It's like you used to walk up to friends and you give them a hug. Right. Or you sh- shake hands. You know, I think we'll give hugs to our close friends sooner than later, but I don't know about the handshake. We're going to have to find something else because we need to find ways to kind of share our friendliness with each other. That's part of cultural norms, and those norms are really important. And so whatever it's going to take the place of the handshake, the fist bump or the elbow bump, it's something. It's got to be there because we need that. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on the movement to destroy, where everything gets torn down? And then how do we how do we move through this, you know, this time of destruction and instability and, and start to yeah. build things up again? As you love to say, let's be flourishing. Yeah, yeah, let's flourish. And let's, you know, I think that there's work that we have to do. Um, I think there's institutions in the United States and, and the way things have been done. I think some of that needs to change. But what I would say is that, you know, uh, destroying property tends to hurt the people that live in those neighborhoods. Um, so in that sense, it's not productive. Um, you know, that, there's one thing to say, there's what, you know, it, it's one thing to say that people are angry and upset and have real concerns. And I think that's right. And I think we need to address those and, and not pretend like they don't exist. That's the first thing. So just starting that dialogue, I think is going to go a long way to stopping the destruction, but destroying homes and businesses and breaking windows and defacing what public and private property with graffiti, you know, all this kind of stuff that's happening where, you know, defacing monuments and all these things that we're doing. I just think there's, you know, those bring real immediate costs. And I think the people that bear those costs the most are in the cities, you know, those cities where people live. So it's, you know, we, we, we need to move away from that. We need to, figure out how to lower the anger. Um, and I think that has to start with building real frank and honest conversations. I don't think we can just say, you know, people need to stop doing this. I think we need to enter into these cities, as you mentioned, Minneapolis. I mean, we see it in Chicago and other places. We need to find leaders who are willing to build bridges and have conversations. And I think we can go a long way with that. But I think, you know, as Christians, what is our job here? It is to lead with Jesus and love and to listen, not to just want to be heard, but to listen to what other people are saying. I don't think most of us, self-included, are very good at that, right? When we're in conversations, we just can't wait for our turn. Um, and we like to tell other people what we think, right? So I think we need to kind of be a little bit more humble. And I think if we can start those dialogues at the local level, I think we'll get we'll get a lot of work done. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Ann Bradley as my guest. She's from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, and she's my go-to person when it comes to talking about economics in the world. And now we've got a gigantic uh, federal deficit. That number is getting to be horrifically high. I didn't even know it's like a cartoon number now. (laughs) It is. It is. So, you know, the big question is, how do we proceed there? I guess, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Did, didn't have no, a question. No, no, I, I was just, I was, I don't even know what to do with the number that big and how that affects our economy and how we even begin to try to make a difference in that number. Yeah, so I think it, it's really, you know, we have to change the way we think. Um, I think that federal deficit for 2020 is, you know, going to, close in on four trillion dollars or something like this right that that's a lot and it's you know people joke it's like monopoly money because it's it's hard to even in a concrete fashion imagine what that means right or what that looks like for most of us so i think we're really going to have to as we carve our way out of you know kind of living through a pandemic um and this is very important in an election year because the ideas people hold you know, are, are the ideas that, that get into policy. So if we believe that the government can solve a lot of our problems, then we're going to ask it to do that, and that's going to grow the federal deficit. And fundamentally, Bill, that's what I think is the problem. I think we have incredibly high and unrealistic expectations about what all levels of government, but in particular the federal government, can do for us. You know, it's Government policy, it's not its not magic. My professor in graduate school used to always say economics puts parameters and constraints on our utopias, right? Because we all want the utopia, that we all want the free money. We all want all of our problems solved right away. And, of course, that can't happen. And so when we look to the state, you know, as the first line of defense to solve some of our problems, I think that's where we change culture, too. We, we not only get these huge deficits. And spending that's untenable into the future, by the way, this has an implication for people who are not even born yet. So we are, by (laughs) engaging in this long-term debt, yeah, I mean, we're burdening our great, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren without their consent. So I'm not sure we should be doing that, Um, but we continue to. So I think we need to shift our expectations. Yeah, that uh, that is really interesting. Um, when I think of some of the uh, depression that is going on, I, I, t- we are in a recession right now, aren't we? Yes, okay. we are. And then are we in first quarter or second quarter recession? Well, so usually the way we, you know, economists have claimed this as a recession, but usually a recession is two quarters of consecutive depressed growth. Right. But I mean, we're there because we're that's what's going to happen. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're kind of claiming it as a, as a recession, but we're still in the early phases. Now, the question is, you know, will it last really long or not? I think we don't know that. Yeah. And do you see any bright side for the average American or consumer through some of this downturn? I mean, is there some correction that goes on where, you know, I saw a a real estate ad for like a, a little townhouse in San Francisco and it was like 600 square feet and they wanted like, you know, $900,000 for it. I'm going, whoa. You go, that's just nuts. Does it ever get to the point where there's a little bit of correction in the market where some of this stuff isn't so inflated and blown out of proportion? Well, so, 
you know, I think this is this is what I like to say. I gave a talk on this yesterday on just kind of how creativity is what I think will get us the furthest um, out of this. You know, creativity will um, people will find newer new innovations and new ways to do things. Now we had to go to, through a lot of economic damage <laughs> to 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 get that. So you know, I'd prefer not to have repeat this. And as would everyone. But I, I think that what I'm trying to say is that people are innovative. People are clever and people are creative. And the market will find a way out of this if we allow it to. So I do think things will settle down. You know, um, you, you talked about housing, but I just want to talk about something much more, you know, kind of maybe simple and basic because we all use it, not that we all don't live in houses, but toilet paper. So, you know, if you're following the stories about toilet paper during COVID, it was really fascinating to see what was going on. And, and at the beginning, um, you know, you know how they said, well, everybody pick one person from your house and, and that person will, should do the shopping and you minimize your trips. So that's what we did. My husband was the person he was doing the shopping and he would come home and would say, you know, I went to three stores. I found one four pack of toilet paper. And so what he tried to do is learn from week to week when they got their deliveries and he'd try to show up then and all these, everybody was doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting. The toilet paper was just flying off the shelves. And I thought that was curious at first because this is, you know, COVID doesn't have GI effects. So part of it is just, you know, when there's a snowstorm, people get toilet paper and milk and, you know, maybe that's what they were doing because they just thought, well, I don't want to run out of toilet paper for heaven's mm -hmm. sakes. Right. So I think people were buying more, but what was going on really is that overnight the demand between residential and commercial toilet paper changed. So prior to COVID, most of the demand for toilet paper was commercial because most of us spend eight, nine hours a day out of the house. And so overnight, everybody goes home. So what happens? Overnight, you get this demand. All the demand is for residential. There's almost no demand for commercial. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, you can't just switch the production process overnight. You have to figure that out. So, you know, those temporary rise in prices and shortages on shelves, they get solved when the market gets put in motion. And so now you're actually starting to see more toilet paper, more bleach, more antibacterial wipes. So I think the beauty of this is that the market is the process that allows entrepreneurs and tells them, hey, this is a shortage. Hey, we need more of this. Hey, we need to find a new way of doing this and, and get that into action. So I really think that there are silver linings, which is that we're, you know, because we're going to have to social distance for a long time. That's not over. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to be creative. How do you take an Uber ride? How do you go to a hotel? How do you do all these things in the new world we live in? I think it's human creativity creativity. It's going to help us figure that out. So I'm optimistic about that. Yeah. No, and of course, in any recession, there's always going to be some Americans that are going to be thriving, like the toilet paper manufacturer, and others who are going to be suffering. There's always two sides yes. of the coin, isn't there? Well, yes. I mean, in a recession, I would say everybody suffers to some degree, right? Because the economy is depressed. And so even if your income hasn't gotten a hit, you're right. I mean, well, people suffer, but if you're out of a job and you can't feed your family, then you're really suffering. Right. So, you know, we want to end the recession as fast as possible because what we're really worried about is people being able to get, you know, get their jobs back and pay their mortgage and pay their bills and take care of their families. And so the fact, you know, as fast as we can possibly do that, uh, we need to. And I think the way that we're going to get there is going to be figuring out how to get people back to work mm -hmm. in a safe way. Yeah, I think that's our challenge right now. And do you find it kind of amazing how few shortages we've we've actually had 
And is that not a credit to the free market? Oh, my gosh. Yes, it is. So I wish I could take credit for this quote, but my friend Anthony Davies, who's an economist, said this. He said, and he showed a picture of, you know, somebody walking down the aisle of a grocery store and, you know, there's like no chicken and there's nothing on the shelves, just a few packages. And his quote was, capitalism looks sometimes what socialism looks like all the time. Right. And I thought, whoa, see, in capitalism, those those shelves get restocked, not maybe the day you want them to, but they because you have this prices and profit and loss in motion telling entrepreneurs what to do. Mm-hmm. And that's how we mitigate the suffering is yeah. we get people the things they need. I do find it interesting, like when I would be going to check out uh, at a Walgreens or a CVS or something, and they would usually have by the register a gigantic fish bowl full of little mini hand sanitizers. And I would always on occasion grab one to have in the car. And it's interesting how that hand sanitizer uh, kind of disappeared overnight and you couldn't find it anywhere. Now it's starting to come back in, in, uh, you know, by, by other manufacturers, but the hand sanitizer, that was the first thing that made me go, Oh boy, I'd like to buy more of this. And I can't. And I can't. Yeah. When my husband found some at, you know, Costco or something, he was like, we won the lottery. And he texted me. <laughs> when would you ever text somebody that you were excited to buy hand sanitizer? How about right? never? I mean, this is never, never. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's been fascinating with hand sanitizer. You're seeing, you know, wineries, distilleries, all these places that produce alcohol, you know, they're transitioning into, hey, we can produce hand sanitizer because alcohol's in it. So that's the market at work. And that's what we need. Yeah. So, Anne, um, I so appreciate uh, your your wisdom on all these subjects. I don't know if I asked good enough questions today, but I, I sure appreciated your your overall uh, view that you always give us from 35,000 feet. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on and doing the show. Thank you, Bill. You ask great questions. Uh, I'm ha- always happy to be here. Thanks. Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest from the Institute of Faith, Works and Economics, TIFWE.org is where you can go look it up. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. to the show. I'm very excited to uh, meet Anthony Stefano. He is an author who, it's like he writes travel guides regarding eternal real estate. And I think it's going to be a fascinating uh, conversation. He's written a book called Hell, A Guide. Hmm. He's also written a, a book similar to uh, 
the other side, calling a travel guide to heaven. So he 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 likes eternal destination real estate topics, and that's what we're going to talk about with him today. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. It's a great uh, honor. I appreciate it. Yeah. Now, I understand you might have mixed reviews when it comes to doing uh, interviews because some people kind of beat you up because this is kind of a serious subject. I haven't been beat up yet. You know, I'm I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Brooklyn Italian street brawler, yeah. so okay, I, good. Haven't, I haven't lost any fights yet. But uh, <laughs> I don't mind a little bit of uh, interaction uh, about a, a subject as important as this one. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear just uh, briefly before we jump into the book, just a little bit about your upbringing, because the whole thing sounds real interesting to me. You know, I didn't grow up uh, as a committed Christian at all. I grew up in a very kind of secular type of home, uh, as I said, in New York. It wasn't until my 20s, my late 20s, actually, that I started becoming serious about my faith. And it was really through the uh, writings of C.S. Lewis. Oh, awesome. Uh, you know, I read uh, The Screwtape Letters was the first book that I read by him, and then uh, uh, Mere Christianity, and I went through everything. And I said, oh, my goodness, here's a guy who's uh, so rational and makes so much sense. So that's really when I became interested. And I said, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to do this in my life, to write these kinds of spiritual books, books that would help people uh, with the things that were most important in life? And that was my thinking, and 20 books later, I, I hope I've uh, contributed something. Oh, indeed you have. So who first put a C.S. Lewis book in your hand, or did you find it on your own? I was in London, and I went to West, uh, Westminster Cathedral, and I went to the bookstore there, and my eye caught the title, The, the Screwtape Letters, by C.S. Lewis, and I just happened to look at it for no reason. And it was a small book, and that's why I had to go take a train ride up to Manchester. So I thought, oh, here's a small book I can read. And I read it from cover to cover, and then I did something that I haven't done since. I started it back right up again on the first page. Wow. Made a big impression. Wow. Well, your book, Hell, is going to you know, let readers go on a complete exploration of um, hell and the devil and demons and, and evil itself. And C.S. Lewis uh, imagined it as a gray, joyless city. And I think uh, one of the questions you uh, take up in the book is, is hell a place or a state of being? Yes, I do. And of course, the answer to that question, I think, uh, is both. Uh, It's certainly a state, a state of uh, separation and self-exclusion from God and from the blessed in heaven. But as Christians, you know, we believe in this marvelous uh, doctrine of the resurrection the idea that one day we're going to have our bodies. You know, we weren't created to be angels. We're not meant to be pure spirits. Spirits, we're amazing kind of hybrid body and soul. And God created us that way, and that's the way he means us to be for all eternity. And at some point, we are going to be reunited with our bodies and be human beings again. And if you're going to go to heaven, well, then you'll have a glorified body. But if you're going to go to hell, then you will have a reprobate body. Hmm. And so at that point, that in indicates that hell will be some kind of a place. Now, we don't know whether it will be a place just like this, or but just the fact that we're going to have bodies, some kind of body, just means that there must be some kind of physicality, some sort of physical material atmosphere in some way for that body to operate. So that's why hell can be described as a state, and at some point, a kind of a place. But we don't know exactly exactly what. No one knows. Yeah, Anthony, it also seems that descriptions of hell would suggest that there is a physical body with needs that are wanting to be met. 
Yeah, the real bodies. The, the only real experience we have in Scripture of a, a description of a body after it's risen from the dead is, is our Lord Jesus, and he had a glorified body. St. Paul says he is the first fruits of those who will rise. And he was you know, able to go through walls and be in one place and then um, 50 miles away the next second. But at the same time, he was able to eat. You know, he was able to be touched. So it's a, it's a strange and mysterious kind of frightening reality what these bodies will be like after the resurrection for those in heaven and for those in hell. But in terms of the, the need to do things, I think that goes to a much deeper question, and that has to do with truth and freedom. The Bible says, you know, the truth will set you free, and, and that's because there's a profound connection between truth and freedom. Well, who is, free, who is truth? Jesus is truth. God is truth. So God is not going to be in hell. So therefore, there's not going to be freedom in hell either. There's only going to be captivity there. Mm -hmm. Captivity to what? Captivity to desires that go without gratification, a captivity to those with stronger wills. It's a fascinating subject, but it has to do with captivity. Anthony, there are passage in Scripture for those who are saved that says, absent from the body is present with the Lord. So if you are unregenerated, unsaved, is there a corollary? Some people uh, believe in uh, something called annihilationism. You know, there are people nowadays who reject the notion of hell, and they say that uh, either God is going to save everyone, and they believe in universal salvation, or somehow if you're really evil and reject the Lord, that he's going to sort of turn you into a puff of smoke. The problem with those theories is that they, they contradict the direct words of Christ. Christ spoke about hell 11 times in uh, Scripture, and he used the most clear, unambiguous, uh, frightening words imaginable. You know, he never said, and the unrighteous will enter the house of God and be happy forever, or, or the impenitent will be destroyed and no longer exist. No, no. He explicitly said that there was a, a place called hell, Gehenna, that people go there, uh, that it's forever. And he used words like everlasting punishment and everlasting fire and the fire that will not be quenched. I mean, it was, you know, he, he spoke about hell a lot, so much so that we've got to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. I think that people who say, who believe in annihilationism or universal salvation, I think they have a misguided view of God's mercy. Uh, they think they're injecting more mercy into the gospel. And this is really the key to my book. It's not merciful for God to force someone to be in his presence. The folks who are in hell don't want to be with God. They hate God. Mm -hmm. They've rejected God, and so they want to be as far away as possible from him, just like Satan rejected God. And that's why hell exists, uh, because there are those uh, fallen angels as well as human beings who had the power and the choice to reject God, and they did. Mm. Part B of my question was, Absence from the body means present with the Lord, but does absent from a body who's been unregenerated, who a person who rejected Christ, do they go to hell and are now in the presence of Satan? I think it depends how you define those terms, and the, the answer is yes, but only our Lord is able to judge right. whether that's absolutely taken place or not. You know, people are deceivers. People lie. People say they believe in Christ. Jesus himself said, you know, on the last day, there are going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Very frightening words. We're not allowed to judge the inner state of a person's soul, so we can't say that. But objectively speaking, yes. So, Anthony, what, uh, what do you think hell would look like? 
You know, that's another fascinating question. And, of course, when you say what will it look like, you have, you're, we're, we're referring to after the resurrection again. Because if something is just spiritual, it doesn't look like anything. Mm-hmm. Scripture uses two words to describe hell, really. Darkness and hellfire. So those are the two indications in the Bible, darkness and hellfire. And you have to really unpack those words and see why would those words be used to describe hell. Darkness, well, think about it. God is light. God is truth. So if you turn away from that, where are you going to be? You're going to be plunged in darkness. You're going to be be plunged in lies. In terms of strictly the physical uh, surroundings of hell, God is beauty, and colors are beautiful. So if God is absent in hell, then there is no beauty in hell. So there's certainly not going to be any colors in hell. It's going to be something gloomy, whether it's dark or black, no one can say for sure. But a world without color is certainly not a beautiful world. Fire is another word. People today, like very progressive theologians, uh, or not even progressive theologians, uh, just don't want to uh, admit the possibility that there's some kind of fire. They say that, well, fire is just you know, the most painful thing we could think of on earth, and so we use fire uh, to describe hell. But again, the, you know, the Bible talks about hellfire in so, so many different times in such a serious way that you've got to believe that after the resurrection – some kind of physical quality of fire uh, will exist there. You know, and, and it sort of makes sense because if God is the source of all pleasure, God is the source of all pleasure, if you turn away and reject that, there's not going to be any pleasure. There's going to be the, the opposite of that, and that's pain. And someone who's rejected God totally will be engulfed in uh, a pain the way people are sometimes engulfed in flames. So very scary, but you know, one thing, Bill – that I've always tried to do in my books. The fathers of the church, the generation right after the apostles, they had a a phrase, a Latin phrase called fides quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. You know, we've been given the faith. The faith's been revealed to us in the words, in the word, in scripture. We have to do our best to try to understand that faith now, because sometimes it can, it can be confusing. And so uh, the, my book on hell and all my books are really an attempt to understand these hard sayings of, of Jesus, rather than try to invent a new faith, which is what some people, I think, unfortunately try to do. Mm, great point, Anthony. In Luke 16, the rich man says that he wants someone to have pity on him and and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So there's supreme thirst uh, in the terms of this rich man. That would be a horrible condition. I think, think, you know, for people to really understand, again, it's most helpful to think of what what is God? You know, God is, is life. God is, uh, so if you turn away from him, what do you have? You have the second death. God is light. If you turn away from that, what do you have? You have darkness. God is truth. If you turn away, what do you have? You have, you have lies. God is, is peace and order. So if you turn away from that, what do you have? You have chaos. You have strife, you know? So if you want an idea of hell, you've got to, you know, imagine what it's like to, to turn away from all that God is. You know, on earth, God, earth is so mixed in with good and evil. You know, people can commit all kinds of sins and still derive, you know, pleasures from them because this world is so full of the reflection of God all around us. But in hell, God is not going to be there. He's not going to be there at all. And so what you're going to be left with is, as C.S. Lewis said, you're going to be left with the remains of, of a human being after all the good has been drained out. 
And so we're going to be left with the remains of, of a world after all the good has been, been removed. And that's, that's, that's scary. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a little break. My guest is Anthony Stefano, although his friends call him Anthony. Uh, he's written a book called Hell, A Guide. And we'll, we'll take a short break and be right back. to the show. So glad to have Anthony DiStefano as my guest. He's written a book called Hell, A Guide, and I find this fascinating, and I know you will too. Um, we all have lots of strange, scary thoughts about hell, as you should. Uh, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, um, that would be your destination. And a lot of people don't want to think about it or talk about it. And, you know, when you have a unsaved friend or family member, you know, it's even worse when you know in your heart they rejected Christ yet it seems that at the funerals you still talk about them being in a really good place. Yes, right. People are canonized uh, the second they die. Uh, yeah. You know, it's very strange. Yeah. What about yeah. the second they die when they have uh, not been made right with God? When a person dies, you know, we define that as the separation of the soul from the body. The soul, as the, old, the theologians say is the animating principle of the body. It's the, it's the seat of our intellect and our will. It's the source of all our faculties. When the soul separates from the body, uh, that soul is still conscious in a way. And, uh, it, it does, it's, it, people think, oh, you're unconscious and you lose your vision. No, no, no not, not, not at all. The soul doesn't lose sight for one second. And, and think about this. You know, angels can see and they don't have eyes. God the Father can see, and he doesn't have eyes, and we can see when we're sleeping and our eyes are closed. So sight isn't something that is absolutely dependent on you know, your retina and your cornea and your mm-hmm. eyes. So souls that, that, that are separated from bodies still see, and you know what they see right away? They have an encounter with, with the Lord, and the Lord is light, light and truth. And in that moment of this encounter with light and truth, they are illuminated and they see the truth about themselves, the truth of their sins, the truth of their rejection. I'm talking now about someone who goes to hell, the rejection of, of the Lord. And, um, and, and, you know, so that, if, if that is the case, you know, that the light that they see is not going to be something inviting and warm and loving. It's going to be something that's harsh and painful. And they're going to, you know, like when a, when a light is painful, you put your eye in front of it or you turn or you put your hands in front of your, your eyes and you turn around. And these souls uh, are going to want to dive into hell. They're going to want to go running away from God because the vision of him is not going to be beautiful. It's going to be hurtful and harmful. It's interesting, uh, Anthony. I have a friend who's worked in in hospice care for twenty five years, and he's you know he's watched five thousand people pass on. And there's that uh, stories he can tell where you know a person who has lived their life for the Lord and has had a deep abiding faith, it's the most peaceful thing. And he said, then I've had many conversations with people who have rejected uh, God and said, I don't want anything to do with Him. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm an atheist, and he says witnessing some of those departures from this earth has been horrifying. Yes. Yeah, it must be. Well, you know, uh, perfect love casts out fear. 
And so when we love the Lord, fear does go, go down. Fear d- doesn't mean you're not going to be frightened a little bit. But it, I think it is very true that those who have a strong faith, just they die better. Because they know, it's, they know they're going to meet the Lord. They're going to meet God. And that's what they've done all their life. That is meeting God. And so if you've spent your life every day praying, you're meeting God. Every right. day you're meeting God. So it's not, it's not something new to meet God after you die. But those who have never met God and those who have rejected God, well, now there's going to be a, a meeting. They, they can't change their minds about it either. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's going to be more frightening. Yeah. So what kind of activities would you think? I mean, we have biblical descriptions of what goes on in heaven or what we think is going to be part of the heavenly experience. What kind of activities can you see happening in hell? Again, this is all speculation. No one can say for sure. Right. We, we, we seem to know that punishments in some way are proportional. The book of Psalms says, God renders to every man according to his work, and, and, and that's repeated in Scripture. And, and, and Jesus, too, says, indicates that when he says that, you know, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for some of the towns he visited on the Day of Judgment. So this indicates that there's going to be a proportionality to the pain experienced in hell and, and, the, and the punishments there. Uh, I think we have to take more seriously the words of Christ. You know, he said, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open to you. That doesn't just apply to those of us who are saying our prayers and, and loving God. That applies to sinners, too. You spend your whole life seeking to reject God seeking to to fulfill all kinds of uh, sinful desires that are contrary to the will of God, then that's not going to stop when you die. You're going to take those sinful cravings and desires with you. The only difference is that, that you're not going to experience any of the corresponding pleasure that accompanied those sins possibly on earth because of what we said before, that God is the source of all pleasure, and he's not going to be in hell. So what we see then is a picture of these reprobates who are, are captive and slave to their own sinful desires without any ability to get any gratification. Now, how that plays out exactly, no one can say for sure. Hmm. But we know there's some kind of slave dynamic in hell, not just to, uh, say, demons or other reprobates with stronger wills. That's about as close as we can come. There have been books like uh, uh, Dante's Inferno or Milton's Paradise Lost or, or, or C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. They're great masterpieces of poetry and allegory. And so they can – and fic, they're works of fiction. And so they can you know, describe all kinds of things that happen. But this book is a book about reality, and it's about what actually happens in hell. So all we can do is, is guess. Uh, but it's not going to be fun, that's for sure. Yeah. Anthony, in chapter 14, you said something that just jumped off the page for me. You said the devil will attempt to cultivate in your soul a fear for your family, a fear for your finances, a fear for your health, a fear for everything that's important to you. And he'll try to convince you you don't have the ability to deal with your problems. And then you say that after he has enslaved you for a period of time, he does his best to convince you that you are powerless to conquer your sins as well as uh, any of the other challenges in your life. Yes. He's all for full-on defeat, isn't he? Yes, and we have to remember that the devil is very intelligent, and he can read the Bible as well as we can, and he knows very well that God's name is mercy, and he knows that God will forgive any sin, no matter how many times we sin, no matter how grievous, as long as we turn uh, in repentance and faith to him, God will forgive even at the last minute. 
So Satan's whole strategy, really, if you think about it, has to turn on getting us never to repent, getting us never to turn to God to faith. And there's really only three ways he can do that. Uh, one is through atheism. You know, because if you're an atheist and you don't believe in Christ, then, well, what's the point of ever apologizing if nobody's up there listening to you? You know, what, what, you know there's nobody to apologize to. Mm-hmm. The other is what we were just speaking about, despair. Despair is when you, you, know, you, you don't believe in God's mercy. So you, you think that you, you're so bad that there's no way you could ever be forgiven. And so what happens is you wind up just, you know, you continue sinning, and you never wind up repenting in faith because you think, what's the point? What's mm-hmm. the point? And it's a vicious cycle. And the third way is to make you a, into a moral relativist, and that's someone who doesn't believe in objective truth and someone who believes that, look, the only sins are the ones that I decide. I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. And those folks, they never repent in faithfulness because they don't think they've done anything wrong in the first place. And that, that's, you know, set game match. The, the, right. the, Satan wins. Yeah. Boy, Satan's strategies are, they're so uh, subtle where, you know, you, you'll have conversations with people that'll say, I don't know, I'll have, I'll, I will have friends in both places, so it won't matter where I go. Or, you know, I think yeah, the well, most fun is going to be had in hell because they always think that's where the big parties are. Yeah. Um, and I think there's going to be a sense of total desolation. You're going to think you're maybe the only one who's ever gone to hell. Yeah, they, they may be your friends now. They're not going to be your friends when you get to hell. Right. You know, Hitler is not playing cards with Stalin in hell. And you see this when people of great pride uh, get together, great hellish kind of arrogance and pride get together. They don't get along. There's always – what happens is warfare, and, 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 and that's exactly what there is going to be in hell, a state above just uh, warfare where everyone hates each other. In fact, and then looking at it in that way, hellfire might actually be a, a, an act of mercy from God if it restricts, uh, if, it, if it somehow binds and restricts uh, the reprobates, uh, because they're going to want to tear each other apart. You know, that's, that's, there's no, what's the opposite of love? Hatred. What's mm-hmm. in hell is hatred. There's not going to be any camaraderie uh, you know, among, uh, among those there. Mm-hmm. Anthony, when I think of some of the ways in which I know Satan will use words to try to help water down their significance, where words like hell and damned get to be such a part of people's vocabulary that that means nothing when you go and use one of those words. You know, those words should make us shudder. Yeah, that's happened with so many uh, words. C.S. Lewis talked about that, too. You know, the word love, for instance. You know, I love God. God, I love uh, my shoelaces. You know, it's a, what, you know, there's, you know, it's, words have been so overused that they've lost their meaning. And yes, that you're, you're right. That's part of, I think, the, the demonic strategy here is to get us to think of hell and the devil in a very cartoonish way. Mm-hmm. Because if you think of it in a cartoonish way, if you, if you think that after you die, God is there, you know, with a big baseball bat, ready to hurt, you know, to to hit you uh, Mm -hmm. because you didn't do what he wanted and he's going to, you know, press a button and a trap door is going to open and you're going to fall down into hell and then the devil is going to be there with, you know, steam coming out of his nose and horns. Well, then who's going to believe any kind of cartoonish thing like that? And that's what Hollywood and the media want. They they, want to continue to perpetuate that myth. But that's not what hell is. Again, hell is the state or place of permanent uh, self-exclusion and separation from God and from the blessed in heaven. And the key word there is self-exclusion. You know, you, people in hell, they want to be there. They don't, they hate God. Mm-hmm. They've rejected God. So, uh, Anthony, before we uh, sign off here, do you have any words of encouragement? Because this is a difficult subject. 
yeah, I you know I want people. I don't want people to think that this is a depressing book. It's not. You know, it's. I think this is. It's meant to be an inspiring book. Time and time again in this book, I emphasize the same point. God's name is mercy. One drop of Christ's blood is enough to wash away the sins of a billion universes. The goal of this book is to get people to see uh, that 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 the joy of our faith. The fact that God wants to, to embrace us and wants to love us and give us all the joy of heaven. Um, and so the, the point is that people will see this and then turn around and try to spread the joy of this faith to, to all around them so, so that fewer people will go to this horrible place. That's the point of this book. And I, so I hope it leaves people with a smile on their face and leaves them just on fire to go out and spread the gospel. Amen. Anthony, thank you so much for doing the show today and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. Anthony Stefano has been my guest. His book is called Hell, A Guide. That wraps up our show for the day and the week. And as you know, it's been an incredibly wonderful week, and we had a great opportunity to just remind listeners this week that we are just so close to the finish line in our uh, year-end fundraising and uh, budget meeting efforts. Thank you for participating on that special event uh, we did Thursday with Susie and Carmen and Neil just meant the world to me. And if you have uh, still an opportunity to give between now and the end of the month, thank you so much for doing that. You can always go to myfaithradio.com. All right. Have a great weekend. It is time to ring the bell. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.